if this were a, a, a talk with a title, it would be called Can't Complain. Um, that very title that I mentioned when we first arrived this morning, which is as, as an old Midwestern response to the question, how are you? Can't complain. And uh, so one of the things I might tell you is uh, that uh, I'm wearing a bracelet that uh, I sent away for. I got a few extras, so I gave them to the people who were here very early. But you can get a bracelet like this, too. And if you uh, go on the internet and uh, look on uh, no more no more a complaintfreeworld.org, a complaintfreeworld.org. And the reason I found out about the way I found out about this is uh, I was in Grace Cathedral three or four weeks ago listening because a friend of mine was the homilist that morning. And in the little church bulletin that comes when you come into a church, what's going to happen that day in the news of the parish that week, it had a little article about uh, a pastor, a minister somewhere, not locally, I think in the Midwest, who actually, Kansas, something like Kansas, <clears throat> who started this, and it, it was just a little, uh, one paragraph, but I remember that it said, first of all, that I could uh, uh, contact a complaintfreeworld.org and get these very bracelets for myself, which I did. And the other thing is that he discovered that his complaining mind didn't feel good to him. This is, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it exactly right. And that uh, he decided to, to start, uh, he was looking for some way to retrain its, his mind. I'm going to speculate right away about what I think it, metaphysically that means, or why a pastor might talk about having a complaint-free mind. But the point of training the mind was that he said he, got, he got, made himself a bracelet, and then every time he complained, he put the bracelet on the other hand. And then when he complained again, he put the bracelet back on the other hand. So it went back and forth, back and forth every time he heard himself complain. And he said if he could stop complaining, he figured out for 21 days it changed, it erased that mind habit. So that was very interesting to me. So I got the bracelets. Uh, first of all, the 21 days, I'm not sure where he got that from. But I'm actually sure that this really has made a difference having it. And even if I don't move it back and forth every time, which sometimes I'd have to move quite rapidly, but, uh, <laughs> but the fact that I have it in mind makes a difference. So thinking about, uh, well, first of all, thinking about where, I want to even back up before that because I read two things this morning that I think are actually a setup for this. And if I don't say them first, even I hadn't prepared them as part of my remarks. I might forget them. Two things that I learned this morning. One thing I read in the National Geographic, it was uh, an actually it was an ad for um, uh, by, uh, for uh, getting a four hundred one k for find, finding someone to help you plan for a long uh, non earning part of your life, because the news was that Hallmark greeting cards sold 85,000 happy birthday 100-year-old cards last year. That's a lot of cards. Now, even you think that, that maybe what that didn't mean that 85,000 people were 100, because somebody, if someone was 100, probably a lot of people sent them a card, so it could be less. But a lot of people were 100, and no one sent them a card, so maybe it 
cancels out. But anyway, it means that a lot of people were 100 years old. And I remembered that uh, a couple of years ago I was flying somewhere and they had one of the uh, uh, one of those infomercials on uh, a documentary on uh, the airplanes television on one of the documentaries on how to live healthy, how to live long. But there was a documentary on how to live long, or what were the characteristics of people who lived long. And one of the characteristics, what do you think? I remember two of the important characteristics of people who live long. What do you think? Location and money. Uh, location and money. I actually, it might be true, but I don't remember those. I don't remember those. Friendships. Friendships. But you know, Phyllis, there was one particular thing about friendships. It said about, you know, talking to these old people, uh, it said that they had friends, but one of the things is that they had lost a lot of friends. You don't get to be 100 without losing a lot of friends. I am learning that by being 70, that I'm already losing friends. So the particular thing that they had was the ability to adjust to loss. That was it, that many, many of them, it's hard to get to be 100 without most of your friends dying, and, and often without your children dying, which is a tremendous thing, you know. I, uh, my friend uh, Martha, who died last year, her brother died two years before, and her mother, who had two children, is still living. And she's lived, outlived the death of these two children quite together. Her mother is 91 and outlived them. So it's hard to know, but it, it doesn't say anything about cheerful, it just says about outlet, you know, the ability to adjust to loss is a big thing. The other thing is it said they mostly, more than not, belong to church groups. And I'm not sure, again, because it could be A or B, I'm not sure that that meant that they had a faith, that there was something larger that they could depend on, or whether they had the fellowship of belonging to a church group. Because for most church groups, if you are elderly and you can't get around, other people will come and fetch you and bring you on Sunday morning or Saturday morning, depending on where it is that you go. And they'll take you home and you'll have lunch together. So you have some contact in the world. Maybe, huh? Good genes is very important. I have a, I have a very close friend who's, uh, oh, 60, six, uh, maybe 60. His mother, if I'm 71, is 81. His grandmother, his mother's mother, just died at 103. Her sister is 105. And their two brothers are 97 and 99 now. So Harvard is now including them in their gene studies because clearly these people have a gene. If four out of five siblings are living up to 100, there's something in them. And uh, I, you know, I don't know. They, 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 as far as I know, they were gymnasts, and uh, I meet them at weddings, and they drink alcohol, drink wine, and toast the bride and groom, who are at this point their great-grandchildren. So I don't know. But I think it's a gene, too, counts also. But uh, the thing about comradeship and people to be with, people to sustain you, so I wanted to say that about the uh, 
the, the, the resiliency, I think. What makes mind resiliency? So you say, well, I would have wanted this, but I've got that. Is there some gene that makes mind resiliency? Is it a faith in, in something bigger than this life that makes mind resiliency? Can you cultivate mind resiliency? So that's really where I'm going with this. Because I also, the second thing that I don't want to forget telling you is um, this is an advanced copy. Oh, I hope I can find the right thing. I started to read this last night. Um, this is Lynn Jensen, who's um, a Buddhist, a Zen practitioner. And a very sweet writer. I enjoy him very much. And this is a new book of his. And the place marker I had came out. I'll have to tell you the story. I'll tell you the story. This is called Together Under One Roof. It'll be out in the summer. Um, he's telling the story. What he's making the point in these small, really beautifully crafted essays about presence. He's a Zen teacher, and he's talking about presence in this moment being that which uh, allows you to not only uh, uh, acknowledge this life and know what's happening now, but really to celebrate it in its extraordinariness when you think about it, uh, without too much distinction about this is wrong, this is right, this should be happening, this shouldn't. It just is the miraculousness of this moment. So he tells a story of riding in a car, being the passenger in the front seat of his friend Frank's car, and riding along, he said, riding along with Frank in his car, and I heard the buzzing of a mosquito. You know that sound you have when you know there's a mosquito <coughs> around your head? Buzzing, buzzing, and he couldn't quite find it. And I suddenly, he said, felt an itch on my neck which let me know that the mosquito had had his dinner at that point. <laughs> and uh, he said, then I saw the mosquito come around and land on the windshield in front of me. And he said, I leaned forward in it, towards it, and I could see a little line of red right through. The skin was so translucent that I could see a little line of red coming through the mosquito. And he said, I realized, I looked at it, and I realized that mosquito's dinner came from me and it's going to nourish her eggs, and she'll have baby mosquitoes. It's amazing it was a, uh, how we are all linked together in that way. And he said, oh, Frank, look what's here. And he said, Frank looked over and said, oh, <laughs> and killed the mosquito. And I would have thought that he would have said, oh, that was not a good thing that Frank did. And he said, oh, he said, and I thought to myself, oh, dear. Frank didn't really look. And the point of the essay, which I'm, I hope I conveyed to you, is that if we really look, then you see through the top story, this is a mosquito that just bit me, but this is the way the world works. We all eat each other and stay alive in this miraculous way. We eat each other, we breathe each other, we share the, the air, the oxygen and the nitrogen with the trees. and and they keep us alive, we keep them alive. And that doesn't mean that you go out in a mosquito-laden field and say, here I am, but, that, that, uh, but to not hold anything outside of what's the natural, extraordinary order of things sustaining each other. From that mind state, you can't complain. 
You know, you say, wow, look what's going on in this extraordinary world. So now we'll go on to Can't Complain, because I thought a lot about it. Put on my hand. Because someone asked me after I'd had it on my hand for a while, and they noticed it. I've had it on for two or three weeks. They said, um, does that mean outside complaining out loud or complaining to yourself? <laughs> so I said, oh, I don't know. I said, I, I guess, uh, I don't know. I said, maybe it means complaining out loud to other people. But I assumed it meant complaining to myself, actually. And I was catching my mind when it was grumbling to myself, this shouldn't be happening. Because actually, I can see how complaining out loud is annoying to other people. It, it really depresses the atmosphere. I, I, I don't like to always be, they always the story that comes to mind, I feel bad about it because my poor mother-in-law, I really loved her. And she's dead 25 years. But I remember we'd uh, open the door to go out from some, we'd be indoors and we'd be going somewhere and I'd open the door and it might have started raining and she'd say, oh, just my luck, it's raining. As if the whole cosmos operates around her, you know, that somehow it's all conspiring. It's not her luck, it's the fact that it's raining, you know. And it might actually be good luck for the wine growers or the tomato growers or whatever, but to take it personally on the just my luck, it's raining. So that makes people feel bad because you realize that she's feeling bad now. So, so it's clear to me that complaining doesn't make a good atmosphere for other people. <laughs> Just remember another story. Here I made all these notes. I'm going to remember 10 stories on the way to the notes. Uh, <laughs> no, no, the, the story that comes to mind is Ajahn, Ajahn Sundara. Ajahn Sundara is a nun. She's a Theravada nun. How many of you ever met Ajahn Sundara? Ajahn Sundara is uh, my age. Uh, she's French. She uh, was a dancer as an adult. She was a professional dancer. Met uh, Ajahn Sumedho, heard him teach somewhere in England. And she's, she was French. She heard him teach in England. She became so enamored of the Dharma that she gave up her career, left the life that she had, took robes, and has been a nun for 30-some years. Uh, Ajahn Sundara was one of the people with me at um, a conference in Dharamsala in 1995 uh, of Western Buddhist teachers meeting with the Dalai Lama. And we all stayed together in a, in a hotel in Dharamsala and we went daily to the Dalai Lama's palace to have our meetings with him. This is an extraordinary thing, you know, it was so... I mean, it's really one of the high points of my whole life. It's an amazing thing. And uh, the stories about that are themselves incredible, but we'll leave them for another time. But we'd go up there in the morning and have several hours of meetings together with him. Then we'd go back to our hotel for lunch and uh, hurrying to get back there before noon because the, um, the, uh, the monastics among us, with the several uh, ajans, men and women, that were part of our group need to eat before noon, so we'd be rushing back to our hotel so they could have the lunch that was already eaten. And then we'd go in the afternoon for more teachings with, with His Holiness. So we were coming back from one of the morning teachings. It was, a, I don't know, we probably walked a half a mile, it wasn't that all much. 
but uh, through cobbled streets, through Damsal, not much streets, not exactly paved streets anyway, walking up a hill, and, uh, it had and the monsoon season had started earlier than they had expected. So it was really torrential rains coming down. And they, if you walk through a torrential rain next to a hillside, which we were doing, it sluices down the hillside and it runs all over your feet. So Ajahn Sundar and I had one umbrella between us, so we were both under the umbrella. And she's, of course, wearing sandals, which is what monks wear. And I'm wearing whatever I'm wearing. I was probably wearing sandals as well. You know, it was summertime, it was warm. Anyway, here we are walking along. Driving rain, it's not only pouring over our feet, but she has to like, hold her robes up because otherwise they'd be dragging in the, in the rain. And not a word about the raining, you know. And it was in my mind at that point that my mother-in-law of blessed memory. <laughs> I thought to myself, it's a different project to walk with Ajahn Sundara in the rain than it was with my mother-in-law. <laughs> and well, my mother-in-law didn't have a training like Ajahn Sundara, that's all. So we were walking like that. At the end of the week, there were various inconveniences. Uh, the rain was one thing. The heat didn't work in the, uh, in the hotel that we were staying in very reliably. And uh, at night, we would meet the teachers who were all being housed in that hotel, would meet in the main like living room of that hotel to plan the program for the next day, what we would present to the Dalai Lama and I meeting together. So there were 26 of us in a circle every night getting together. And we would sit in the, in the living room, each one of us bundled up, as we were earlier this morning because it wasn't warm enough, bundled up with blankets. There weren't quite enough blankets to go around. So we were sitting, two of us together, huddled, huddled and tucked in with blankets. That was one of the, you know, that was just another little inconvenience of the trip. The water didn't run exactly well into the showers, but it's just an inconvenience. Nobody said anything about it. Nobody said anything about anything about the logistics of the trip. Everybody was thrilled to be there. Um, and at the end, on the last day, we, when we were back in our sharing circle, we went around and everybody said what had been to them the most amazing or the most noteworthy or the most significant piece of the, of the week. And I, I truly do not remember what I said. I don't remember what anybody else said. But I remember that there were, um, uh, there was a camera crew there. There were a couple of video people videoing our meetings and our meetings with His Holiness, and a journalist who had come with the video crew who was planning to write a journal about it, which I'm not sure if he did or didn't. But at the beginning of the week, we had made an agreement with these journalists and these videoists that they could be in the room when we were meeting, but that they were not part of the meetings, so that they weren't invited into the discussion. But at the end, after all of us had shared what was meaningful about the whole week, we asked them to also share what had been meaningful to them. So the video people said what was meaningful to them. And then the journalist went, last of all, his name's going to come to me in a minute, but it doesn't matter. And he said, you know what? He said, what was most significant in the whole week that I noticed is that not once did anybody complain. And I thought to myself, huh, you know, this, this, we talked about a lot of lofty topics, you know, like <laughs> emptiness and non-emptiness <laughs> and liberation <laughs> and the end of suffering and what does it really mean and the future of Dharma in the West. And the most significant thing to this person is that nobody complained. 
and I've remembered it till now. And I've been, you know, obviously been thinking about it uh, uh, for a couple of weeks now. No complaints. Um, So I've been thinking a little bit about the metaphysics of complaining or why it would be, why, going back to why would this pastor in the Midwest have said, uh, I, I'm stopping complaining. What's religious about that? And um, I, I came to mind that there, I've heard at least two viewpoints on that. One, the viewpoint that if you really saw the extraordinariness of cosmic truth, I mean, that this whole creation is here, if you really got that, that you couldn't have a single complaint. I mean, it's so extraordinary to be part of this whole experiment of as the world turns. I mean, you could have, you could have just as easily not been, you know. The, the fact that we hid that way here, not what is happening, seems like the largest possible context to hold it. You think of the, uh, the, uh, the last line of uh, Psalm 150, which is the last psalm in the book of Psalms, says, every breath praises God. It's a very triumphal end. But when you think about that, if you had that view, so I thought I'd read you two views, because um, it's not the only view, nor is it the only accepted religious view, because within religious communities, I'm not gonna, I, I, certainly I'm not ending up by saying, that any one particular religion I know has a corner on hallelujahing or not complaining because I, I can hear it in both. But this was a great thing for me to find. I, I remembered this from many, many years ago. This is a book called Coming Home by Lex Hickson. It's out of print, but it's a lovely book. And you probably can get it on Amazon through old books. Um, it's um, a presentation of seven or eight religious traditions Judaism, Christianity, um, uh, Islam, um, Sufism, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, within each of them, where is the hallelujah tradition? Where is, where is the way of saying there is nothing but the, the one that's the ground of being, Paul Tillich would have called it? Wait, I'll tell you where this starts. So kind of the understanding when you read mother stories about uh, Mother Teresa where, where people would say to her, how can you be with these people who are in such a wretched condition? How can you look at them and touch them and be with them and not be, not be in any way repelled by them? And she said, you know, when I look at anybody, I see the face of Jesus. Is it that, it's that sort of a vision that is large enough to not see the story, but to see the greatest context of the story. Uh, that the point that uh, Lex Hickson is saying is that within each religious tradition, there's the ecstatic path that sees that we are not separate from the one that is everything. So uh, this is a story about uh, uh, the uh, the. Uh, told by Elie Wiesel of uh, a particular Rebbe, a, a rabbi in the Hasidic tradition, uh, whose name was Zussia, who was burdened by illness in his life and many other problems. He was asked how he could continue to praise God. He said, who is suffering? Not I, I'm happy. 
Zussia is happy to live in the world that God, blessed be he, created. Zussia lacks nothing, needs nothing, and his heart is filled with gratitude. When holy ecstasy is deep enough, the question, who is suffering, has no answer. For the individual is immersed in divine presence, and therefore the question, why suffering, dissolves. On another occasion, Zussia responded in a different mood to the question of suffering. True suffering exists, but like everything else, it too comes from God. People are too weak to accept or absorb divine charity, which is absolute. For that reason, and that reason alone, does God cover it. And with that evil is the pain. With the evil, covers it with the evil that is pain. And you can't see through it and see that there is really something larger. It says, actually, he said, you can use suffering. Suffering clears access to the ecstatic experience of the soul's intrinsic freedom. It's interesting because you think as a Buddhist, you would say, who suffers? out of the clarity that there is no separately existing I that is suffering. You say suffering is present in this body, but no one who owns it. It's the temporal experience of this body. If I see that this body is the temporal manifestation of, as a result of, uh, of karma, of my parents, their parents, and everything else forever, ever, it itself will pass. No one owns it. On the other hand, we come around to the other side. Here is Gerard Manley Hopkins. How, who knows the poetry of Gerard, Gerard Manley Hopkins? <laughs> you uh, remember it, huh? It's, <laughs> do you know which one I'm going to read? Uh, Simone, I think you will. <laughs> It's the one that everybody knows. This is Gerard Manley Hopkins was a British cleric a um, hundred years ago. He's a really extraordinary poet, a very wonderful word use about the glory of God manifest in creation. But here's another Gerard Manley Hopkins. Thou art indeed just, Lord, if I contend with thee. But, sir, so, so what I plead is also just. Why do sinners' ways prosper? And why must disappointment all I endeavor end? Wert thou my enemy, O thou my friend, how wouldst thou worse, I wonder, than thou dost defeat, thwart me? O oh, the sots and thralls of lust do in spare hours more thrive than I who spends her life upon thy cause. Is that a complaint or what? <laughs> that is a very big complaint on God. <laughs> I love that. I, I learned this poem 30 years ago, and I said sometimes I'd be riding somewhere, and all of a sudden I think to myself, oh, the sots and thralls of lust do in spare hours more thrive. It's a great line. Then I who spends her life upon thy cause, see banks and breaks, now leave it, and thick laced they are again with fretty shervil look. And fresh wind shakes them. Birds build, but not I build, no. But strain, time's eunuch, and not breed one word that wakes. Mine, O Lord of life, send my roots rain. Doesn't that hurt your feelings? I feel bad for poor Hopkins. Is that what you were thinking I was going to read, Simone? No. <laughs> 
But it's a complaint, right? Why don't you send me some good stuff? Half of the Psalms are complaints also. Demolish my enemies. I'm in pain. Why have you forsaken me? They're like regular people talking about regular things that happened to them. So really the whole point of what I was hoping to get around to talking to you and with you about this morning is we don't always feel hallelujah. And when we don't feel hallelujah and assuming we're not one of the Zeusias of the world that has always firmly intact the hallelujah view of it's amazing to be alive, what do you do with the fact that dismay arises so badly and when it does, that dismay has an eye that's attached to it. You say, who's dismayed? You say, give me a break. It doesn't matter if there's an eye or not an eye who's dismayed or tired or grumpy. I, I love to tell this. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have heard me tell the story that uh, my husband and I spent some time in India with a teacher named uh, Sri uh, Punja on, in 1991, and we were there for a month. Uh, Punja Ji, who's dead now, uh, was a, a, a disciple of uh, Ramana Maharshi in the Advaita tradition. I went, we went with several of our friends, some of them teachers in, 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 uh, in, the, in Spirit Rock. Went with my friend James and a bunch of other people and my husband. And we spent a week um, in, um, in India in uh, uh, Lucknow. Lucknow, in Lucknow. Were you there? No, I just know he's coming there. Yeah, he's in now uh, in Uttar Pradesh province, so it's a four or five hours by train from uh, Delhi. And we were in a hotel, and we went every day to uh, satsang and listened to him teach. And it's very much in the tradition of there's no permanent eye there that owns anything. So that he he taught um, as uh, uh, Advaita teachers do in the dialogue. Uh, uh, inquiry. Christopher Titmus does this a lot too, where inquiry with one or another person's there, just on their daily stuff that's going on, what's going on. Someone will report, I felt I got up in the middle of the night and I was very frightened, or I was very this, or I was very that, whatever it was. And Punja might say something like, Where is the I that was frightened? And that you, with skillful questioning, People often had the remarkable moment of actually experience the anatta experience that there's no I that owns experience, that experience arises and passes away. There isn't a, a little person in us who's looking out through these eyes or hearing through these ears and then reporting it to another I that's marching around in this body. That It's just phenomena arising. There are sense experiences, the awareness of them, the interpretation of them, the response to them. But there's no one there, which I didn't believe for years. But it's not something you believe because it's counterintuitive to believe it. I mean, you feel like that. Certainly. Anyway, here's the story. Sometime not so far after, we were really deliriously ecstatic with him. He's a wonderful teacher, and it was a great experience. It was our first trip to India. Everything about it was amazing. And uh, some weeks after we were home, uh, just in the end of the day at, at dinner, probably in some conversation, I remarked about some thing that had happened with one of our daughters or sons. I don't even remember what. 
But something had come up, and I said, let's say it was Emmy. I said, uh, I'm so annoyed with Emmy about X, Y, or Z, whatever it was. And he said, in the best advisor way, he said, where is the I that's annoyed? And I said, don't give me any guff like that, you know, <laughs> that uh, you know and I know that there's no I there. But I was annoyed. Annoyance exists. You know, it doesn't matter if there's anyone who owns it or doesn't own it. Presumably, if I lived enough in the absolute awareness that there's no one that owns anything, it's a transient feeling, I would be able to say annoyance has arisen and it does not feel good. It is unpleasant. <laughs> but the, the great freedom of annoyance has arisen is if I don't own it, I don't have to do anything about it either. You know, if it's just arisen, it's just like saying raining is happening, you know. I don't have to go out and stop the rain or push the clouds. I could stay indoors if I want or take an umbrella. That it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that I need to be in contention about it or take it personally. It's a, it's, a, it's a very tricky kind of question. I hope you're thinking along with me because I, I, when I went, I wrote and wrote and wrote and I ended up by saying I didn't come to a conclusion. That's because I'm going to ask you to make the conclusion. Some, uh, some time ago, I remember it well because uh, I usually have in my life a spiritual director, some kind of a teacher who's outside of my group of friends and outside of my uh, family that I'll talk to on some sort of a regular basis about what's on my mind, what's going on in my life, and my heart. It's good to have somebody else holding your life with you and listening to it from, uh, from not a place of unbiased, because I always have one that I think loves me, uh, but uh, which is really necessary and is interested in holding my life, uh, just as I am interested when I get to hold other people's lives. But but who could really listen and really give me some feedback if I asked about it, you know. Uh, it's again course corrections. Am I on course or off course? Uh, so you can talk about what's in my heart. That's uh, what's going on. The climate of my mind or my heart. And I remember, because mostly people do spiritual direction on the telephone. I was someplace in the United States. He was some other place. And I, could listen. I was listening to myself reporting on that month. And, I realized in the middle that I was being very grumpy, you know, that I, my, my voice didn't even sound good. And, and really, I was complaining. And I had this moment of awareness about it, and a little awkwardness, you know, like it was gauche. You know, you talk to a person that you love, you don't like to, especially, you know, the person who shares your sense of that life is a gift, and here I am grumbling away, this and that. But I remember this because it was a very, very helpful answer. I said, you know, all of a sudden in this phone call, I feel peculiar because I feel like I'm just complaining. And I remember he said, um, how would you know how you felt if you didn't hear what you said? And I thought that was really helpful to me, you know? So if I expunge from my mind, if I, if I don't let in my mind all those things, if if it would mean if in this moment I am not seeing that it is a glorious cosmos in which it's an amazing miracle that, I, that this life gets to play a role in this great cosmic movie, if in this moment I've actually fallen in to the trap of despair of there is someone, me, who is suffering, how will I know that unless I hear it? And 
and cop to it in a certain way. Say, yes, I am suffering. You know? Maybe you don't feel like, um, who knows, it's years ago now, but, but uh, not a lot of years, but who knows. Maybe with one spiritual director, you don't like to say, listen, I'm a spiritual mess. I actually know, I actually know that there is nothing but the divine, or there is nothing, it's all one. There is no one here, no one lives, no one dies. But in this moment, I can't see that, I don't feel it. And in this moment, I'm taking it completely personally. And I'm suffering. But, and I know if I wasn't, I wouldn't be, but I am. <laughs> So, so much for, you know, so much for the idea that someone asked me, some, somebody uh, this week sent me an email, uh, uh, this is not unusual, a graduate student somewhere, very well versed in the literature, matter of fact, such a long email with all the citations about uh, the qualities of an enlightened person and wanting to know what I thought about what in the end is an enlightened person, did I believe in enlightenment, did I have a sense of enlightenment. So it was a, such a long, really erudite, posed question. She'd done a lot of homework about it. And I'm supposed to know. So, so I, 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 actually, it wasn't so hard to answer because I you know, tell the truth. I say, all of those qualities of an enlightened person that you talked about, Honesty, morality, integrity, <coughs> responsibility, cheerfulness, uh, availability, compassion. I said, I think they're all, they are all indeed qualities of an enlightened person. I don't know anybody who's like that all the time. So I don't actually know about achieving enlightenment. I think we have, um, all of us, enlightened moments in which our actions come from wisdom, and you could say about our actions that they are an actions motivated by an enlightened mind at that moment. There are moments free of all the stuff that we're carrying along with us, not, um, not held captive by any of the stories of our lives and the habits of our mind, which is what keeps the stories of our lives alive. But I don't know any people who live in that place all the time. Maybe Deepama was one of them. I'm not sure. I, I guess. I never, I, I don't know. I don't know. I met her, but, and I was very, um, I was very impressed. But it was hard for me to judge because she had a great deal of tranquility. And um, she was a woman, uh, she was a generation older than I am and from another culture. So it's hard to read. Uh, you know, I have to translate through culture, and, uh, and we have a different culture too. We've been—I uh, think—I say that as a collective we. We've been really, especially in this last psychological century, uh, encouraged to know how we feel and say how we feel and not hold in how we feel. Really, what I ended up thinking about, how can you know how you feel unless you hear what you say, hear what you think, and that maybe in the, in the uh, sanctity, which is a good word, of a relationship with a psychotherapist, with a spiritual director, um, 
of in fact if you if you're part of a a, a a tradition that has a prayer tradition the sanctity of your prayers to the divine maybe that's actually the place where everything is welcome and the way that you come nearest to yourself if you get back to the uh, image of the labyrinth that brings you nearest to yourself maybe you get nearest to yourself by telling the whole truth about yourself one of the very famous uh, Hasidic uh, rabbis in the, that particular mystical tradition was Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. One of the practices of the uh, students of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov is to get up before dawn, they still do this actually, and go out into the fields and pray individually uh, in the pre-dawn hours of the morning. Uh, it's, it's not so easy in the middle of downtown Brooklyn to go out into the fields, but uh, my informants tell me that people go up on their rooftops and uh, outdoors so that you're alone and you can talk out loud. And the prayer of uh, one of the prayer styles of Reb Nachman, which is very well known, is to talk out loud as if you are in a conversation with God. So in that case, God is other and outside. And one draws oneself close to God in that tradition by telling essentially what's the truth. But it sounds to me very much like mindfulness practice, except that it has that particular, uh, it has the, the particular phrase of God out there, but which we don't very much associate with mindfulness. But actually saying what's going on and full of uh, complaint. If complaint is going on, I don't feel well. Where are you? Said my roots rain. What are you doing? Other people are thriving. I'm not thriving. I'm killing myself here. I feel bad. Uh, and my experience with that and my thought about it is it, it makes the, um, I think, it, it, maybe I'm hearing it that way because I believe this from my own meditation practice that the more I tell myself what is true now, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether I am grumpy, I am really mad, I am really unhappy that this has happened. I don't feel good. This unhappiness, uh, uh, my stomach is turning, I'm slightly nauseated, I'm a little dizzy, I'm completely irritable, my mind is a fog. The more that I say those unsavory things, un, un something, uh, undelightful things, and present them, uh, the more I feel, here I am. I'm left. I told the truth. That's the whole truth. If I have a construct that says I should never feel them, then I'm in trouble. If I have a construct that says these are human beings that we are, and we feel it. We feel grumpy and nauseated or dizzy or irritable or mad or jealous <coughs> or envious or all those things from time to time. And that's the way they are. They're not necessarily things you want to cultivate. But at, 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 at different times, I've called them having a flu of the mind. You know, you get up in the morning and you have a flu of the body. You don't make yourself wrong for it. You take good care of yourself. You get back in bed. You, you, know, you take the right medicines. You cover yourself. You keep warm. You get people to take care of you. And you don't lament. You know, you say, this is what happens. I have a flu of the body. You have a flu of the mind to be able to treat that with kindness, too. You have a flu of the mind. So is that complaining? Is that complaining or is it just telling yourself the truth about how it is without imagining? Here's the biggest thing that I think that meditators imagine 
it may not be true, but my experience is that the biggest thing that people will ask as a question, uh, maybe you wouldn't ask because you've been hanging around here for a long time, but, <laughs> but people ask, they say, I still get angry that somehow we shouldn't. But everybody gets angry. Things happen and annoyance arises. What we do with it, is, remember we said a little bit before about, uh, you know, uh, I'm so annoyed at uh, Emmy. Well, where is the I that's annoyed? If I can say, well, there isn't an I who's annoyed. Just, my mind is filled with annoying feelings, and it doesn't feel good to me. If I can do that, I don't have to do anything about it. Because I can also, at that moment, say annoyance arose. Like if somebody dropped a heavy weight on my foot, it would hurt. So say, my, my foot hurts. After a while, it won't. It'll feel better. This annoyance will pass. I, if I held it in a big enough wisdom, I'd be able to say, not only will it pass, but at the time that she said or did whatever she said or did at which the annoyance arose, she couldn't say or do other. That was what came out of her at the time. Now, the 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 uh, the other a phrase that goes with can't complain is I couldn't be better. It's another Midwestern phrase. How are you? Couldn't be better, which makes you think that you're in the peak of good. You know, and couldn't be better. But I don't actually think it means that you're in the peak of good. It means at this moment you couldn't be better, even if you're cranky or irritable or disappointed or miserable or grumpy or picking on everybody. I mean, you could stay home, you could do something about it, but you couldn't be better. Um, that has given me such great latitude in my life. To, but I have to remember that since I can't be better today, I better be home and off the telephone and, you know, and not send any emails because they won't be the me that I want to manifest in the email. So that, that the play, what, it, what mindfulness is, is it's the wedge in between what's true and acting on it, which then makes more karma and makes more habit and treats it as realer and more worthy of doing something about than anything else. That actually, if we see things in a balanced way, in a clear mind, not obscured by annoyance or anything, we don't create more problems for ourselves. And acting out of a place of, of um, afflicted mind, we often do. Except if you step back from afflicted mind, you say, I have an afflicted mind right now. It would be a good day to stay off the highway uh, or, or not make phone calls. Does that make sense to you? Yes. So, because I want to end up with um, how many people here now have a can't complain, no more complaints.org. So, if you want one to, I'm sorry I didn't have enough, but this is what I've got. Go online there, $2 a bracelet or something. Get a bracelet if you want one. Make yourself one if you want. Could put a plain rubber band. But I'm really interested in, because uh, I, I talked a lot about could be A, could be B. Here is uh, uh, Reb Zusha saying, how could I be annoyed about anything in, in God's cosmos? Here is Hopkins saying, the sots and thralls of lust send my roots rain. Uh, here am I saying, my, you know, my mind grumbles. You know, I wish it didn't because I am the, ch the principal sufferer if there's an I. But you know, suffering exists as a part of the grumbling mind. But, if you have, but suffering exists when you have the flu too. 
and he can't will it away. It just lasts until it finishes lasting. So if, if as is true, <laughs> I ended that whole talk with nothing because I couldn't think of what was the right end. I would like to suggest that for five minutes in groups of six, make little groups of six, ready, set, go, everybody do it. Make a little group of five or six people, mini seminar, and in your group of six, what's the end of this lecture? You write it for me. What does can't complain actually mean? Five minutes, because then we are going to take a survey of what does it actually mean. Okay. You can have three people, you can have four people, you can have five people. Ready, set, go. <laughs>
So I see that we have uh, stay where you are, stay where you are, stay where you are. Maybe find out people's names in the next second or two. I have a feeling today that we should have started with telling everybody names. How many people here are here three out of four times a month? Two out of four times a month, three or four. Okay, then pretty soon we're going to have really learning the names. That's, that's an important part. I wish we could go on a little more because this is a very important conversation, isn't it? You know, that what, what, did, what did say, what, Lynn, what do you think your group's biggest insight was? So, because uh, when I passed by, we talked about. So it would be all right to say, you know, guys, um, it it doesn't feel good to me that I'm the only one who uh, that I that I usually end up uh, washing the dishes. That's not a complaint. That's just a piece of news, you know, right? <laughs> That's different from nobody here ever does the dishes except me. Maybe that. Huh? Yeah, they help you the other way. Okay, maybe it's tone of voice, but that would be control or... Anyway, Joe, what did your group think? Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That's I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about that. That's so important because the, the the jab part is the, when you're complaining. It's often or that the other person could have made it otherwise or something. Who else in the back? What that? What do your group think? Yes. Venting, I think that's called. <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, if you can do it by yourself or with a tree, it's great. Yeah. So, Simone, in your group, what did people say? Mm -hmm. uh, with complaining because as the rabbi was saying you can see 
<laughs> Anybody doesn't know what kvetching is? Okay, everybody knows what kvetching is. Actually, the, the, the literal meaning of kvetch is to squeeze. The literal meaning of kvetch is to squeeze, to tighten, uh, to, to, to squeeze, but you, there's, there's, there's a cramping around you. So, okay, who else's group? Nancy, did your group say something you want to say? Or? No, I was getting a finer definition of kvetching because I didn't really get what it was. <laughs> well, so what did you tell her, Phyllis, is kvetching? Well, Complaining. Uh, I said, is it bitching? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about the word kvetching in our group, and my mom is um, of Russian and Eastern European Jewish descent. Yeah. There's a difference between complaining and kvetching, and, and my definition was is that it has this ah kind of feeling to it. There's a neediness involved in the kvetching. Actually, your accent changed when you did it. You sounded like your mother. <laughs> Probably half of us sound the same if we let the mouth fall down. What else? What else? Here, here, here. How about, there you go. I had never heard the definition of kvetching as you gave it, the, to squeeze, yeah. to, to tighten. And, and what came up in our group was the story, the, the kvetch, the complaining, the repetition of the stories that we carry create a groove that does squeeze us, that keeps us in place. Uh-huh. And well, one of the things that was so wonderful about the bracelet was that it's um, such a positive, intentional object that that sets a commitment to take the story and do something mm -hmm. different with mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And then it also came up, and I liked that very much, what you said was such a wonderful ending to um, talking about this big issue for everybody is this story in mm -hmm. Hare Krishala. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, the the biggest thing is that nobody complained. Well, you know, we have one more week together before I'm gone again, uh, and I didn't plan next week. But I was thinking about if you wanted to take on this bracelet practice with or without a bracelet and see what happens by next week. Just watch it, because it's a thing to watch the mind about. And or not just not to do it like, ah, I'm stopping it, but notice what's your feeling when you're about to. You know, if you find your mind complaining, so many people on the freeway, so many people, you know, the, my dentist books 10 people at the same time, and I'm sitting here three hours, whatever it is uh, that you're thinking about. And what's actually going on? I think because all the things that people say, maybe I'm frightened, maybe I'm not in control, maybe this, maybe that. What, what, what is the precipitating cause of the desire to quench? 
about the complaint. Somebody said about the complaint. Who said about the complaint? I was thinking that would be a wonderful, uh, like a mindfulness bell in the mind. I'm about to complain right now. <laughs> Could I look at that for a minute and change it from uh, i.e. to uh, a statement of fact? Because there's a way to say a statement of fact. You could say, oh, I'm so sorry that it's raining. This makes it much more complicated. That's not a complaint. That's, uh, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I have a question about what about other people complaining because I'm a psychotherapist intern and it's my job to listen to people complain all day. Yeah. You know, there's a